Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. I am your host, Danielle, and I am here today with Anne and Rob Simpson. As professional photographers, biologists, and authors, Anne and Rob are noted national park experts, having spent years involved with research and interpretation in the national parks. They've written many guidebooks. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Danielle. Yeah. Pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. First, do you want to tell us a little bit about the guidebooks that you've written? We started out with the wildflowers of Shenandoah National Park, which is our, our backyard park. And then our, um, we went into a series of nature guides to help park visitors gain a better understanding of the nature uh, and plants and wildlife of each of the major national parks. So, so far, we've gotten uh, five of them written, and uh, including Shenandoah, Blue Ridge Parkway, Rocky Mountain National Park, Yellowstone, and Yosemite. Blue Ridge Parkway is 400 miles to Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It's often an overlooked part of the national park system, uh, but it's, it's got some of the most ecologically important areas uh, in the United States. But we'd love to do all the national parks. Um, these are written, we're both biologists, but we also realize that most people don't really care what a sepal is or um, the technical part of wildflowers or plants, other plants or animals. And so uh, most people just want to know what that red flower is or what that blue bird is. And so we've written these with general public in mind for people to learn about the national parks and protect the national parks. And we really hope, we also try to give neat, fun, gee whiz type facts about the animals rather than boring stuff. Are your books available in the in the stores, in the park? Yeah, they are available in the park bookstores. If you buy anything from the park bookstores, a portion of, that, of those proceeds from the park visitor centers goes back into the park to help with educational and other resources. And Senator National Parks Association, which is the, like a friends of the, the associations will often sell books and maps to help the visitor uh, enjoy the park more. But all proceeds from the park associations go back into uh, educational and interpretive resources and, and research areas. So it really is a nice thing to do. The other thing that's so cool about the Shenandoah National Park Association is that if you join, you can get a, a discount on every book you buy in the park. It's, it's a big discount. It's about 20% discount on every map. Um, you can get discounts on lodging. You can get discounts on your meals that you get from restaurants in the park. You can get discounts for Luray Caverns, which is one of the largest caverns in the area. So if you're visiting, uh, it really is a, a wise idea, we think, to to join the Shenandoah National Park Association and to get these discounts before your visit. Um, that is a great tip, and I'm going to do that right away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It really, it's really, it pays for itself. Uh, in your probably in your first visit, it'll pay for it. Okay. Well, we, we do love Shenandoah, so uh, we would definitely benefit from that, and um, as would the park. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is, if you have a membership to Shenandoah National Park, if you visit another national park, you can get a ten percent discount in their 
bookstore as well. Okay. I'll, I'll definitely include a, a link for that um, in our show notes. Thank you for that tip. Yeah. Should we uh, jump in and talk about what uh, what the ecosystem of Shenandoah is like? Yeah, that's a uh, sort of a neat thing because it's part of the Appalachian mountain regions, and specifically it's the, the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, it has high elevations. A few of the peaks get over 4,000 feet. And because of that, it has much uh, cooler and more northern or boreal-like temperatures up in the very high parts of the uh, park, like Stony Man Mountain and Hawksbill. And so those are really special areas, and they have special plants and animals that are, that are literally more boreal-like that occur up there. You get spruce and fir. As a matter of fact, the, the one uh, fir uh, is balsam fir, and it uh, essentially reaches its southern limit in uh, this area, as well as gray birch and a few other plants that are uh, primarily boreal. Are there different types of habitats throughout the south region versus the north region, or it's all um, generally the same? It is definitely different. Um, there's In the park, there's an awful lot of uh, uh, red oak-type forest. Uh, it's a deciduous-type forest, but it really is very different down the southern part. It's more acidic-type rocks, and uh, it looks looks drier with more uh, pine-type regions. And really, it's a, some of the southern parts is some of our favorite uh, areas to go out hiking in. It, uh, and, and there are just lots of other little areas. The springs and seepage areas are very important in the park. And uh, Big Meadows is a part of that. They have a very unique, uh, literally a rare and endangered habitat in this Big Meadows region, the spring area lots of unusual plants and animals. And other things that are pretty neat in the park are the rock outcliff out, uh, crops and the cliffs in the park. And, and they have also very specialized uh, organisms that occur on them. One of the things about Shenandoah is it's a, it's a long, fairly narrow park. Um, but the elevation range creates a lot of different habitats. At the lowest point at Front Royal, it's about 560 feet in elevation. And at the highest point, which is Hostile Summit in the park, it's over 4,000 feet. Um, so going from Front Royal to Hawksville in one day, you're, you're seeing many different elevation changes um, because of the habitat plants and animals that can live at different elevations. As, as, as you go up in elevation, for every 1,000 feet, there's about a, a little over a 4 uh, degrees uh, drop in temperature. And <clears throat> so it's quite a bit cooler. More And, and again, 500-some feet to 4,000 is quite a big drop by the time, both annually and daily. And the the highest point uh, around what um, mile marker is that? Uh, does it reach the highest elevation? Hawksville near uh, mile marker fifty, I believe. Yeah, it's in the central district. And okay, and so that would be around. Is Big Meadows around halfway? I believe. Big Meadows is. We we normally think of Big Meadows as the halfway mark. Mm-hmm. So uh, Hawksville is very near. Big Meadows. Okay. And uh, you mentioned 
I think it was Rob, um, that around Big Meadows is an endangered um, habitat. So what do you mean by that, and what makes it endangered? It's a high elevation, uh, mafic fen, it's called. And it's essentially, it's kind of neat. For long periods of time, the original American uh, Indians were uh, kept it open, and apparently Shenandoah even means something like uh, open area for hunting grounds or for animals. Um, and and anyway, they kept it open, and, and the parks tried to keep that as an open area. And within the big meadows area, the, the big open meadows, uh, there are springs and seepage areas, and a particular type of rock makes it very very uh, special, and there's lots of interesting things that occur there, right from different types of dragonflies that are quite unusual to uh, there's one fern called the leathery grape fern that's the only place in Virginia it's found. Are all plants and animals native to the area? Unfortunately, some are introduced, and some are, can be real problems, and others are, are not as much of a problem. One plant you'll see pretty frequently is uh, along the roadside. It's called Dyer's Woad. It's a yellow mustard-like plant that's introduced, but it was a introduced thing with the with the Appala- original Appalachian people that were coming into uh, settlers. It's actually one of my favorite plants. It uh, has a lot of uh, historical uses behind it because the folks who uh, made clothing, the ladies would gather this plant called dyer's woad, and they would dye their clothes. It makes an indigo blue color. That's how it got to be called dyer's woad, or um, what they used to color clothing with. So it has a kind of a unique history behind it, as to many of the, of the native plants and some of the introduced plants as well. Some of the park botanists, though, one of the biggest problems is with some of the introduced plants, and there are whole teams of park rangers that try to fight these introduced plants to keep them from overtaking the native plant habitat in the park. One called stilt grass, and another called garlic mustard can just literally get in and wreak havoc with the uh, with the native vegetation. And you can volunteer with the park to go out and help them with those those eradication programs. So we really highly encourage you to do that. It is. We want to make note that it is illegal to pick any plant, introduced or native. It's a, it's a federal offense to pick any plant in a national park. You can't uh, touch any animals or even remove a rock uh, from a national park. So you have to do this as an official volunteer with a national park ranger that has a permit to do this. Okay, that is that is a good note. Um, and I, I'm sure uh, parents might have a hard time with their children, uh, but uh, our children are, are well-trained in that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, and the best thing to do is just, if you see uh, another family and their children have wildflowers, just nicely tell them that uh, it's best to leave the wildflowers and and other plants for other people to see, because if they pick them, they're going to be gone. And one of the things that we we are very careful about in our our books that we write um, is to not 
let um, the exact location of any plant um, known because of that problem. And, and one of the big problems that Shenandoah has is with plant poaching. A lot of the plants in the park um, are used for flower arranging, or typically for flower arranging or other medicinal purposes, such as ginseng. And uh, a lot of plants in the park are under threat from plant poachers. Oh, wow. Is that like a whole underground business? Exactly. And so if you happen to see um, someone with a mysterious-looking bag or trash bag, um, please report that person to the, to a park ranger. Don't try to stop them yourself, but you might want to write down, jot down their uh, license plate number um, so that this can be stopped. Wow. That's a shame. Are there other rare or threatened plants or animals? And um, besides um, poaching, are there any other big threats? One really rare plant that uh, grows in the park is called the greater uh, purple-fringed orchid or a large purple-fringed orchid. And it's pretty spectacular that blooms on her a foot long, and it might be three or four feet tall even, so it really sticks out. It grows in kind of wetlands and Unfortunately, sometimes right along the Skyline Drive it grows, and people, of course, see it, and if they're not, they don't realize the rarity of it, or if they just don't have knowledge that you're not supposed to pick anything, uh, they pick that plant. And that's one that is subject to just picking because it looks pretty. Um, others, uh, for instance, uh, there are quite a few rare plants that grow on the rock outcrops and the cliffs. But the rock outcrops, of course, are places that are very uh, attractive to visitors to go and stand on them. Oftentimes, little do they realize that some of those, some of our rarest plants in the park do grow on those outcrops. And the people really, they can watch where they put their feet. It can be a big deal. Uh, things uh, There are even some lichens that are undescribed. They're new to science, have been found in the park. And they, those are often ones that do grow on the rock outcrops and the cliffs. A little thing called a cliff club moss that grows in the park up in the high elevations. And it's a rarity that climbing around on the cliffs could disturb it. And so, yeah, there are lots of things that are, that can be a threat just even incidentally by people walking places that might hurt plants. Okay. And um, orchids, you, uh, at least for me, I uh, I think of orchids as a tropical flower. Um, I wouldn't think of them growing here. So, but I know that there are so many species of orchids. I'm surprised to hear that, that, that there are orchids in Shenandoah. Yeah, I think it's actually over 30 species, if I remember, remember right. They're really... Orchids are pretty diverse in the world. They're, you know, approximately 35,000 species. They are mostly tropical, but we have a fair number right here in the park. And some of them are really showy, like yellow lady slippers and um, the little showy orcas. And pink lady slippers. Pink lady slippers and, and the purple fringed orchids. And some are pretty small, and uh, people would hardly even see them or recognize them, and certainly wouldn't recognize them as an orchid because they're 
flowers are just literally a couple of millimeters. How about the introduced orchid? And we even have yeah. one orchid that's introduced. We we found it uh, a few years ago uh, along one of the trails, and since that time, it has spread to a couple of other spots nearby. It's a uh, uh, called a halibrine orchid, and it's a European thing that uh, uh, it's pretty. It's very pretty, and is widespread now up in, especially in Canada, in certain spots, become very common. And it likes disturbed areas, so it tends to grow right along the trails. Oh, that's interesting. So was it intentionally introduced? I don't think it was intentional, in, except I know it has been planted in gardens and arboretums and that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's hard to say. Sometimes people think they're doing the park a favor and will bring wildflower seeds to the park and plant them. Um, but they don't really realize that that's not something they should really be doing. But many of those wildflower packets are plants from the West or the Orient, and you don't really want to introduce anything into the park that is not native because it takes up the the ground and the nutrients for the native plants. That, that probably didn't happen with this orchid because it's been spreading from the north, from Canada south. But And orchids yeah. have tiny, tiny seeds literally like dust there. So they can easily get on a hiker's boot. So mm-hmm. if you were hiking in, in one of the northern states or areas in, or Canada, and then came to Shenandoah, that seed could be planted by your boot. And I didn't know it. Okay. What is the season for these various orchids? Are they all the same or do they all bloom at different times? What's the best time to see some of these? Well, that's just, uh, it's so variable uh, Yellow lady slippers and pink lady slippers will be out not too long. They're May, the first part of May, they can start blooming. And uh, then there's a whole progression of orchids through the summer. And then the, some of our very last blooming orchids are herb flowers, our orchids. Uh, even in October, we'll find one little orchid up in Big Meadows called the yellowish lady's dress orchid that... Uh, is widespread in the meadow up there in October. We've even seen it blooming in November. Are there any other wildflowers that would surprise a visitor um, besides the orchids we've already talked about? One of the most noticed wildflowers, I think, is the wild columbine. And it's a plant that grows in rocky areas of the park. And it's a beautiful red flower. A lot of people have never seen this before. It is one that you can plant in your garden, but um, often these the flowers that you plant in your garden, again, are from out west. So it has backward-pointing spikes on it that are pollinated by hummingbirds. This is a pretty neat plant. That is neat. A lot of plants, too. One is uh, a lot of people have types of clematis that they grow in their gardens, but we have a uh, couple of native ones that grow up there, and one is spectacular. It's a purple clematis, and it has big purple flowers. It's pretty uncommon, but uh, a few of the trails have uh, uh, have these beautiful clematises on them. One of the earliest blooming flowers in spring wildflowers is the large flower trillium. And it's a white flower with three petals and three sepals and three leaves, hence the name Tribritrillium. 
And it happens to be the logo of the Shenandoah National Park Association. It's such a special plant. Trilliums only bloom pretty early, April through May. It's one of the plants that that we look for on the annual wildflower weekend. And it it has a really neat story behind it. um, They often form large colonies, and as they age, they turn pink. So these flowers, these colonies of the ground are sometimes covered with white trillium, but then as they age, they'll turn pink. So you get a white carpet turning into a pink carpet, which is which is gorgeous. But one of the neat things about it, it has a symbiotic relationship with ants, and ants love to eat little uh, nutritious food packets on the seeds called eliophones. And they grab these seeds, they grab actually a fatty packet packet that's attached to the seed, and they want to take that fatty packet back to their um, ant home, and they eat the fatty packet and then throw the seed away. So one of the ways that trilliums are often uh, planted and spread through the park are by ants. Oh, that's very cool. And ants, uh, ants are hard workers, and that it's. I'm always wondering what are they doing and what are they carrying. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. Another neat plant that can be found in the summertime in big meadows is called fly poison. And if you're there in June and July, you might walk out into big meadows, which we highly recommend everyone take a beautiful stroll through big meadows, and there's several hiking paths through big meadows. And one of the plants is called fly poison, and it's kind of a whitish, greenish, yellowish flower that looks like a a, a baby bottle brush. Um, I guess people still use baby bottle <laughs> or baby bottle brushes, uh, but a long brush, and it's a fairly tall plant, can reach up to almost three feet tall with several of these uh, flower spikes and long, uh, narrow leaves. But fly poison uh, was used by the early colonists um, to they mash up the, the, the roots, and they've used that as a poison to kill flies. Um, they've mixed it with a, mixed the roots with a little honey and then put it on their windowsill, and in the morning the flies would all be dead around it. Hence the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how it got the name fly poison. And that's up there. And Shenandoah is one of the very best spots, particularly at Big Meadows, to see that plant. With the... Another another plant in Big Meadows, if you're there um, in the summertime, which uh, was when a lot of people visit in the summertime, it's called butterfly weed. And that's a, a wonderful plant. It's not really a weed, um, but it's an orange, small, it looks kind of like a shrubby plant, but it has bright orange flowers on it. And butterflies love this plant. It's a type of milkweed, and it uh, it's really puts on a show out in uh, in the meadows and big meadows, and along the along the skyline drive in a few spots too. It likes open areas. Okay, I'll have to look out for that. Um, are there so obviously we've uh, you've mentioned big meadows as a great spot to see a lot of these. Uh, plants and flowers. Are there other trails that are best for wildflower viewing? Yeah, they, and one of the things that in our um, Wildflowers of Shenandoah book, we, and that is available as an e-book, so that's kind of handy. Within the park, there are a lot of different trails in the park. 
uh, one of our favorites uh, is at the northern part of the park is called Sneed Farm Loop Trail. And here you can see early spring wildflowers like uh, bloodroot and cutleaf toothwort right near Dickey Ridge Visitor Center at, at mile five. Let's move on and talk about birds. That seems like a logical place going from flowers to birds. Um, so what are what are some of the um, coolest birds to see and the easiest birds to see? What And what are perhaps the most rare birds to see? Some of the biggest birds in the park are pretty easy to see uh, from the overlooks, especially things like ravens, which are crows that are really big. In the crow family. They're in the crow family. And, and we actually, in the park, have three types of crows. There's the big raven, which is the biggest of the, of the uh, crows, and the common crow, which is a bit smaller. And then we even have fish crows occasionally, which uh, are primarily coastal plain species, but occasionally at the lower elevations. So it's kind of a unique place to get three different species of, of crow relatives all in the same spot. And uh, they, they have this big croaking noise they make that's kind of very distinctive that people like to hear. And there are lots of vultures, black vultures and turkey vultures, that uh, you can see cruising along the, uh, especially the cliff areas. It's kind of interesting with the vultures. They're, they're beautiful birds, and they're important to the environment. They, they clean up a lot of the uh, decaying matter. And some of the local people call vultures mountain eagles. Um, so the not really an eagle. Not really an eagle. <laughs> and we do see it occasionally bald eagles uh, in the park and uh, occasionally even golden eagles, especially in the wintertime. But... One of the neatest birds that I think a lot of people travel to Shenandoah to see is the peregrine falcon. And that's a success story um, as far as the downfall of peregrine falcon because of pollution um, was essentially killing their their young, the reproductive rate went way down. Uh, but Shenandoah was involved with a, a nesting box or relocation box for the peregrine falcons. And so they're trying to reintroduce peregrine falcons, which is the world's fast, one of the world's fastest flying birds, back into the park. So a great place to see peregrine falcons is that hospital summit that we talked about before, uh, which is actually at milepost 45. Near Michael's 45, near Big Meadows. And the adjacent Stony Man also. And, and anywhere in those, within those two areas of high altitude, you can uh, sometimes have them just screaming right by your head if you're up on top of the mountains. It, it's pretty exciting. They, they can bad bomb at over 200 miles an hour. So that's been a success story, and we're pretty excited that... Uh, they were extinct in the eastern United States, and now they're coming back. And I actually did my graduate work on the effects of toxic chemicals on reproduction of fish-eating birds. So I'm, I'm excited to see that back. And uh, were, they, were they reintroduced, or did they um, make a comeback naturally? They've been reintroduced through a, a program of, uh, in several of the, uh, in the park and adjacent areas. It was a pretty elaborate process because they didn't want them to be habituated to humans at all. So everything they did with these, especially the young birds, was all out of sight of a human. So if they were, they had boxes where the humans would stick food.
food in, but it would never be with a face showing. In some cases, they were even trying to simulate uh, a peregrine silhouettes. And so it's it's been exciting to see the uh, efforts to get the peregrine back in the area. Another really cool bird to look for um, for bird watchers, and even if you're not a bird watcher, just bird watching is actually one of the fastest growing non-consumptive sports in the nation. And it's really pretty exciting when you start learning a few birds and then learn a couple more to be able to recognize the birds instead of just saying, what's that red bird or blue bird? You can actually put a name to it. But one of the neat birds in Shenandoah uh, that Shenandoah is a little bit famous for is called the dark-eyed junco. And here in Virginia, we think of juncos as, we call them snowbirds. And they usually come in the wintertime uh, and feed at our feeders, and they're gray on, gray on the back and fairly small, a little whitish underneath, but um, they have a pink bill. Well, the juncos in Shenandoah don't migrate. They live there all year long, and they have a blue bill. It's the, it's the Appalachian race of the dark-eyed junco. And if you look carefully on the, on the meadows and grasslands of Shenandoah, at the higher elevations, such as big meadows, you can see these little dark-eyed juncos with the little blue bill hopping around on the well, you can, on the grass right they'll, outside the They'll even hop, hop around the parking areas. It's one of the birds that people normally see. Mm-hmm. Canada is also famous for warblers. It's a great place for warblers once they come back from the uh, Central and South America. They come back to Shenandoah to raise their babies. Uh, because there's so many insects in Shenandoah. So Limberloss Trail is a great place to go and look for birds. We often see one called the Cerulean Warbler and the Blackburnian Warbler. So these are tiny birds that are that are very colorful and, and yellow and blues and reds. The most common uh, small warbler in the park, probably the most common bird in the park, is the American Red Start. It's a very lively little bird. And the, the warblers, a lot of them are very brightly colored, and uh, they're really pretty spectacular. But a lot of people don't get to see them just because they don't, they're really not looking for these small little sprites that uh, we come in. And the park is pretty special uh, because of the high elevations. We have one that breeds there called the Myrtle Warbler, and so far it's the only place in Virginia it breeds. It normally breeds way up in the north. In, in Canada, in that area, we have them breeding right at Big Meadows. And that cerulean warbler is a rapidly declining species in eastern North America, and yet the Shenandoah provides a really good last reservoir for that species as a breeder. And um, you mentioned Limberlost Trail. Are there um, any trails uh, specifically recommended for bird watching? One of the ones I like the most is the, is the South River Falls Trail, which is uh, about uh, down in the mid to southern part at milepost 62. And it's a, it's a fairly long, steep trail um, that leads to the one of the um, highest fall, waterfalls in the park. And along that trail, you can see things like chickadees and kinglets and indigo buntings and vireos and Scarlet tanagers, they're gorgeous red and black, rose beaks, black hearted blue warblers, black and white warblers. So it's a great place to look for 
there are quite a few breeding species of warblers. There are some that are really, really colorful, like the hooded warblers and, and Kentucky warbler. So it's it's pretty special. That and that Limberloss that we just mentioned is also just an excellent place for for breeding birds. And is there a time of year that's easiest to see um, birds on, say, the Limberloss Trail? I'm asking that because uh, we've done the Limberloss Trail, and um, the next time we do it, we'll you know try to uh, pay closer attention <laughs> to the birds. Yeah. yeah. So if you start, one of the things with bird watching is you have to start listening and that's sometimes your first clue that a bird is even around so if you tune your senses into your hearing senses on and start listening to the tiny cheep cheeps and beep peeps uh, you can sometimes then clue in on where the bird is the other thing with bird watching is you need to be quiet uh, birds can scoot very easily and sometimes uh, people don't realize that loud loud voices and waving your arms around can scare birds away. So you have to be very quiet if you want to see birds. It is, it was Dan was saying about listening for them, uh, one of the things that's in, that's, there's one or two birds that are common in the park are scarlet tanagers and rose-breasted grosbeaks, and both of them are just uh, drop-dead, beautiful birds, you know, that are mostly from the tropics but come up here to breed. But if you get to know their songs, you'll soon realize they're around. Uh, they both sound kind of like a robin, but the rose-breasted grosbeak sounds like a fast, sweet robin singing. <laughs> kind of like that. And then the rose or the scarlet tanager sounds like a scratchy robin with a sore throat, and it gives this call called chick purr. It goes. <laughs> If you can get the songs down, then you'll start realizing to look around. And even though these birds are brilliantly colored, people often miss them just because they kind of blend into the trees for some reason, you know, as, a, as many tropical-type birds do. So songs are a big deal. Another trail that we really like for both uh, wildflowers and birds is called Mill Prong Trail. And that's, again, near Big Meadows at about milepost 52. At Milan Gap. And one of the birds to listen for is that if you hear this bird, you'll, you'll never forget it. It's called a wood thrush. And it has a very flute-like song. And But again, you have to be quiet as you're going through the, through the woods and forest. Uh, the other one to listen for, to start listening for and learning, is the oven bird. The oven bird is, is the favorite bird of teachers. Because the oven bird's song goes, teacher, 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 teacher. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> My kids would definitely get a kick out of that. Yeah. I wanted to ask you quickly about butterflies and um are there how many different types of butterflies? I my kids have a particular interest. My uh daughter um last September volunteered to pick milkweed and um was really into it and just loves butterflies. So for her I'd like to ask that question. Genova is a great spot for butterflies. It, uh, as a matter of fact, a few years ago, uh, we found a butterfly called the Early Hair Streak, which is a, I was an avid butterfly for kids, and I always wanted to see this Early Hair Streak. And anyway, it was listed as just you know 
never to be expected and blah, blah, blah in the book. So Ann and I found one up in Shenandoah. It was the first one ever found in the park. And I guess probably the first one for any national park. And since then, we now know there's a breeding population of this rare butterfly that occurs uh, in Shenandoah. And it does come out early, but there's also a population there a little later in the uh, year, too. It's kind of neat. It's green on the bottom with red spots, and it's just a small little butterfly, but brilliant uh, iridescent blue on the top. And it, so that was exciting. We got a, and, and Shenandoah, but Shenandoah is good for butterflies because of the high elevation, get lots of species, and Big Meadows is the spot to go to look for uh, a good variety of butterflies. Because there are a lot of wild native plants that butterflies love as a nectar. And I'm so glad your daughter is, is working on um, spreading the milk, uh, milkweed seeds. That's so important to do because of the monarch populations. And as we know, the habitat where the monarchs migrate uh, is being, unfortunately, um, cut down for other reasons. But they really depend on the milkweed in their migration. There's, there's another thing your daughter can do, too. She'll be famous if she finds this. There's a, a rare plant, the only place Virginia that grows is out on a trail near um, Skyland. And it's at the end, and it's called Bearberry. And there's a butterfly, a small little elfin. There are several types, brown elfin, striped elfin, Henry's elfin, and we've found all of those in the park. But this little, it's actually hoary elfin that own, the larvae only feed on Bearberry. And it's never been found in the in the park yet. And if and that's that's the place to go look for it. And we've never been there at the right time or the right day. The right time it was too windy. And we hope somebody's going to find that, and it will be new for the park. And if somebody finds it, it'll essentially be add a nice chunk of scientific knowledge to what Shenandoah is all about. That your daughter's going to get famous if she finds it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no promises, but we will try. I'm just going to repeat that. The hoary elfin butterfly, the larva or caterpillars, eat bearberry, which is only found on the Miller's Head Trail near Skyland. So be on the lookout for that. One of the other neat things you might want to, uh, next time you go to Shenandoah in the fall, last year they took the park rangers took part in a monarch tagging um, activity, and the children were allowed to help with the monarch tagging. So you might want to ask to see if they're planning on doing that again as well, if your daughter might like that activity. Oh, wow. Yeah, we'll definitely check that out. Yeah. And even another thing, they have a uh, July butterfly count in, in in the park and surrounding area that, uh, you know, they entice people to come and help them do it. It's it's a fun thing to do, and you get lots, again, you try, lots. To, you try to count all the monarchs in your area, all the zebra swallowtails, all the tiger swallowtails in your area, and then you get together, and and it gives you a, both a good idea of how many of these types of butterflies are found in the park. Wow. And that's typically near around the 4th of July time. Okay. Let's talk about wildlife. Everyone who goes to Shenandoah, I think they hope to see bears. Bears are one of the most exciting things to see in the park. And fortunately, Shenandoah 
uh, has one of the highest concentrations of bear populations on the East Coast. So you actually have a really good chance of seeing a bear in the park. Are there particular areas or are they throughout the entire park? They're throughout the entire park. They're most active at those two times a day, in the early in the morning, late in the day. The, the best place is right near big meadows along the Skyline Drive and near Skyland. They're often there. And again, down at the visitor centers and uh, around mile marker five, you'll often see bears too. They often are around areas uh, where humans uh, will also congregate. Um, and 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 believe it or not, you're less likely to see them out on the trails. They're they're uh, tend to be a little more. Sometimes you can see them from bears from the campground. We often see bears at the Matthew. Matthew's Arm Campground, uh, which is at milepost 22, and along the, the trails, another good place to see bears. Another, another good place to see bears is in the Lost Mountain area, which is down the southern part of the park, and that's another campground area, uh, and that's at milepost 79 um, in the southern part of the park. The Fraser Discovery Trail is a neat place to see bears. Um, at the, also at the uh, right at the tunnel. There's only one tunnel in the park. And, Mary's Rock Tunnel. Yeah, and there's a female there that uh, for several years had cubs that uh, often will be feeding in the trees right near the right near the Skyline Drive. Uh, do not get near them. Do not get too close just to get a picture. Stay back from the bears. And if you see a bear on the trail, um, you want to make some noise so the bear knows you're there so you don't surprise the bear, uh, number one. And the other thing that we always caution people is not to let their kids run ahead of them on the trail because sometimes it's actually that running movement that will will spark uh, the, the hunt uh, instinct in the bears or other large mammals. So you don't want to let your kids run ahead of you on the trail. If you do see a bear on the trail, you... You pick your kids up, you pick them up, and you, you shout at the bear and say, hey, bear, go away, and clap your hands. Make yourself look large, as large as you can. Anything you can do, waving a coat. Or, yeah, if, it, it's something to be aware of when you're, when you're around the bears. They are very powerful animals. And, of course, you want to be very careful not to get between a mother and her cubs. That's one of the most dangerous situations to find yourself in. And if you do see a bear on the trail, you just back away, just back off. And again, keep your kids right with you and, and don't let them run ahead of you on the trail. What's the, the most elusive animal in the park? The most elusive? Well, it's funny. A lot of people go and they want to try and see a bobcat. And they, they bobcats are actually fairly common in the park, but not a lot of people see them. However, just recently, there's been a bobcat at Big Meadows that has been coming out late in the day and putting on a, a show in the sense that it just goes about its own business, hunting and looking for things, and really isn't paying very little attention to people. And a lot of people have been, just been excited to uh, uh, get uh, to see them and get pictures of it. One, one of the best times to see a bobcat is, is at twilight. And very early in the morning or late in the evening, and if you drive slowly, and the park speed limit is 35, so you have to drive fairly slowly anyway. But if you drive slowly along Skyline Drive, which is the road through the park, at night, 
you'll often see bobcats and raccoons and other animals hop up on the stone wall that lines much of Skyline Drive. So you can often see them at night, but you do have to be driving at night, which is sometimes if it's foggy, you don't want to do this because it is dangerous. We did a uh, survey for about five years, and they were nocturnal animal surveys up there. They were 50 miles long, essentially, recording all the animals. And we saw in that uh, time almost three bobcats per survey. So if you are out at night and on the drive, you get a pretty good chance of seeing one. One One of the things about bobcats is you can often hear them, especially in the early springtime. And the the local people used to think they were witches or some woman screaming in the woods, and they thought the woods were haunted. And babies screaming. Babies screaming, but they often have this oh, such a weird a call that the bobcats are calling for a mate. Uh, it sounds just this haunting scream in the in the early spring. So you can often hear them. <laughs> That that would definitely freak me out. <laughs> yeah, it's a really weird sound. Um, and what wildlife do you find is most overlooked by visitors, if anything? Well, a lot of the um, fish in the park are very interesting. Snakes, there's a lot of snakes in the park that are, most of them are harmless. There's a um, neat one that's bright green that's up uh, at the high elevations, a smooth uh, green snake. And it's uh, it's really pretty neat. It's just bright green, and most people don't realize that those are even around. You do want to be aware, though, that there are some poisonous snakes in the park, and they're, they're fairly frequently found, including the northern copperhead and the timber rattlesnakes. So we do have quite a healthy population of rattlesnakes in another, the park. Another good reason to stay on the trails, uh, you can... Those snakes are pretty camouflaged when they sit out in the in the woods and the leaves. But and if you're climbing on in a rocky area of the park, be very careful where you put your hand. Always watch where you put your hand. If you're stepping over a log on a trail, be very careful to look first before you put your leg down because you you might step on a rattlesnake by accident. We the the Appalachians are famous for salamanders. And Shenandoah has one salamander that's found nowhere else in the world. It's called the Shenandoah salamander, and it's only up on a few of the very highest peaks in the park. And it's a neat salamander. It's got this red back on it. There's other. There's another salamander that has a red back too. But this one is a wavy red line down its back, and it's it's really it's special. It's Shenandoah's uh, iconic. Uh, Poster child. Yeah, poster, poster child. child yeah. And again, it's in, the Shenandoah salamander is endemic to Shenandoah National Park. It's found no place else in the world. Uh, and it only, again, occurs at the highest peaks in the park because it has to have cool temperature to live in. And as climate change continues, uh, we're running out of high peaks in, the national, in Shenandoah National Park for this little salamander to remain cool. And so we're afraid that uh, it may become extinct due to climate change. And climate change is something that humans have done to ourselves and the world. So they're monitoring the populations of the of this 
just like they are doing out west with the little pikas, which are a mammal that are very sensitive to uh, increases in temperature also. Um, is the Shenandoah salamander already on an endangered list? Or, um, yes. It is. Yes. I would love to see that. Well, I so enjoyed our conversation today, and um, I learned so much. Cannot wait to get back to Shenandoah. Um, we already have plans to go this fall, but maybe we can make it before then as well. And um, thank you so much for taking the time. We've got our bags packed and are heading for Shenandoah right after we hang up. Oh, excellent. Great. And that is our show today. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to Ann and Rob Simpson. Uh, we will be back again in a couple of weeks talking about the history of Shenandoah. And that will be the last in our Shenandoah series. And as always, if you can please subscribe and write reviews, give us your comments, share your thoughts with us, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We will have show notes available for this episode on our website, everybody'snationalparks.com. And uh, we look forward to talking again soon. Bye now.